Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Marlin's Corner. I am Marlin, your host of this 30 Minutes or Less podcast on cinema, uh, TV, streaming, all the above. And my goal is to be your spark notes, to give you some things you need to remember so you can talk to your friends about it, or maybe give you a recommendation so you can check it out yourselves. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about Netflix's monster the Jeffrey Dahmer story. Now, I want to give you a warning right now. This is about Jeffrey Dahmer, so it will be a little jarring, a little explicit. We talk about some of the crimes he did. So if you're squeamish, uh, definitely know going ahead, we will be talking about some of that. Um, so that's your warning for now. Now, the Jeffrey Dahmer story is another example of real life boogeymen that exists in our world or existed in our world. And what I think is something you'll notice from the Jeffrey Dahmer story, Ted Bundy, and many of these other stories of real life serial killers is that they have a lot of commonalities. And one of them is how uh, time and time again, law enforcement drop the ball in these cases. And they especially drop these balls when it involves a white assailant. And I'm going to give you some more examples as we dive further into the whole story. Now, Jeffrey Dahmer killed 17 people in total. It goes without saying he's an evil, evil individual. And I truly don't care, truly don't care that he later in prison, you know, found a Bible and tried to get, tried to get right with the Lord. This man ate people and experimented on their bodies and did terrible things. Uh, there's no easy way out of that. So that's just me. But what's important to know is that uh, even, you know, before he transitioned into cannibalism, Jeffrey Dahmer time and time again was getting caught up with the law in scenarios. And for some reason or another, uh, White, uh, he was getting he was getting minimum sentences and just not really looked at as a threat. Case in point would be the sexual assault and drugging of a 13-year-old minor. And you would think that that would be the end of the story, that he'd be arrested, lives would be saved. Yay, story's over. But no, that's not how this worked out. Instead, we get a sympathetic judge in this case who sees it as this young white man who made a mistake and this family, this Laotian family of immigrants who are upset. And he chooses to say to the family, like, you know what? I know your son was drugged and molested uh, by this uh, older white man, but hey, you know, everyone deserves a second chance. So instead of you going to jail for, you know, a long time, I'm going to give you five years probation with one year uh, in this kind of work program. Uh, and also, I'm not going to alert your employers that you did this. You'll still be a registered sex offender, which you would think would also help people track this man, but no. That didn't help at all. Spoiler alert. But anyway, the judge just gives this man a second chance and five years probation. And that's the only excuse he gives for giving Jeffrey Dahmer this five years probation is that he's just like, oh, you deserve a second chance. There's no other reason that he gives. And you kind of get the feeling, yo, this is happening because this is a white man versus an immigrant family. Had this been a role reversal, had this been a black or brown man who assaulted a white child, boy or girl, absolutely they would have gone to jail for the maximum sentence. But despite literally the evidence being there, being drugged, being assaulted, they gave him 
leniency, thus allowing him to continue doing what he's doing. And he's just gearing up for more and more crimes. And it's important to know that a lot of these attacks took place at his Oxford apartment in Milwaukee after he winds up getting kicked out of his grandmother's home um, because, you know, he's an alcoholic. He's a very creepy, weird guy. But, you know, they just send him to uh, a black and brown neighborhood to get an apartment. And that's where he finalizes his hellish transformation to the devil he becomes, where instead of just killing and dismembering, he's now eating the bodies of of these individuals that he's killing. He's storing them in the home now. He's putting them in in bins and freezers and smaller fridges. He's keeping them in, in the house as keepsakes now. And what shields him from consequences, again, is his is whiteness. And more importantly, what shields him from consequences is the fact that it's the 80s and he lives in a predominantly black neighborhood. He lives there and guess what's also happening in the 80s at this time? It's the crack epidemic. And what's also happening? It's the AIDS epidemic. And he also happens to be targeting gay black and brown men. So you have him pretty much in the perfect place to be a serial killer. You, you're you flying under the radar because you're in an area that unless there's a shooting involved or something high stakes, uh, you're not going to get any attention. They're not going to be looking into missing black and brown children, which that's still true today. You know, we thankfully have social media to actively spread missing people there because they're not going to wind up on the news unless they're a white child. But even then, he's flying under the radar safely because of the people that he's targeting. And despite all the horrendous things that occur in this docuseries on Netflix, um, we do get the you know a hero. And that hero played by Niecy Nash, which I love Niecy Nash, is Glenda Cleveland. And her part of the series is really, really heartbreaking. You know, she's a black woman who was the next door neighbor to Jeffrey Dahmer. And what makes it worse is that she's hearing the screams. She's hearing the power tools. And she is smelling the rotting flesh from next door because they share a vent. And despite her hearing and smelling all these things, this woman does not get aid from the police department at all. Time and time again, Glinda is on record of calling the police and attempting to alert them to the goings-on of Jeff Dahmer next door. She cites the screams at night. She cites the power tools. And she most importantly cites the smell. And as someone that has worked in sanitation um, back in high school, if there's one thing I know can actively just like alert you it's the smell of um like a rotting carcass working sanitation you find dead pets uh, all the time roadkill and the, that smell triggers a gag reflex in you and it immediately alerts you that there's something decomposing near you this woman is living next door to that smelling that the entire apartment unit in that building they're all smelling it and they're trying to get help in that apartment but again they live in a black neighborhood and they are overlooked. It doesn't matter that they're hearing the screams. It doesn't matter that they're smelling the smells. It doesn't matter that at some point, Glinda also sees one of his victims, not the last one, attempt to escape. There's a young boy who's 16 years old who gets lobotomized by Jeff Dahmer, runs outside, the police show up. Like, strangely, they're there finally. And Glinda's attempting to tell them 
this kid is running out of his apartment. He's actively avoiding Jeff Dahmer. There's something going on here. Can you help this child? And Jeff Dahmer is telling them, oh, this is my like partner. He's really drunk. We're having an argument. He's fine. I'm going to take him home. And again, Jeff Dahmer is a registered sex offender. You would think that maybe they want to run his name to the system. They want to call it in, do some double checking. But no, they see this as a gay thing, as a gay lover spat, and they don't want to be involved in it. This is the AIDS epidemic. They don't want to touch these people. They don't want to be in the same room. You can, hey, listen, y'all are doing weird stuff. Um, take your uh, boyfriend back inside. He needs to go to bed. Y'all are causing a scene. Get it out of here. That's as far as they get involved in it. The show even includes a snippet of a recreated recording where Glenda and the officer that came on the scene are having a conversation where she's asking him, did you look into this child? And he's like, ma'am, it's fine. You know, ma'am, everything's okay. You can't judge people's sexual taste. Fully glossing over that, oh, so you didn't look into if this kid was of age. If this man is supposed to be with this child, you just saw it as like, these are two gay people. I wipe my hands of it. They're going to do what they're going to do. And that's how they treated Glenda's concern. They gaslit this woman for so long. They gaslit her into thinking she was being an annoying neighbor and needed to stop calling them. Despite every, despite the police telling us, hey, if you see something, say something. Despite all that, she attempts to do the right thing. And instead, she, she is rewarded with like disdain for calling in and reporting this. And then when the news breaks, when his last victim, Tracy Edwards, escapes and brings the police back and they finally find out that he is a murderer, they do not reach out to Glenda Cleveland immediately afterwards. Glenda goes on and does interviews and tells people, no one listened to me. The Reverend Jesse Jackson gets involved. And, you know, of course, everyone's talking, about, you know, the, the mayor's discussing how it's like, oh, it's a big race issue now. And he's like, hey, you didn't listen to these people. Like there's a, there's a, a first person account who's telling the news that I tried to talk to the police and they ignored me that's on y'all. How is that on the Black community to not be upset about that? It makes more sense that they'd be upset than them not being upset. And instead of you be like, oh, they're just being mean, like you need to actively look at what it is you did to assist in these murders. And let's be real, the police absolutely hold responsibility for this. Had they done their jobs, there would have been far less victims. And what's worse is that, you know, this isn't anything new. We know personally that the police are not here for us. And not only do we know that, but we also know that in the Constitution, they don't have to either. You know, Darren L. Hutchison, a professor and associate dean at the University of Florida School of Law, stated that neither the Constitution nor state law impose a general duty upon police officers or other government officials to protect individual persons from harm, even when they know harm will occur. In other words, police can watch someone attack you, refuse to intervene, and not violate the Constitution. The only point 
that they even have to, quote unquote, protect you is if you are in custody with them. That is at the only point in time where they have a duty to protect you. And custody is, again, narrowly confined to situations where a person loses his or her freedom to move freely and seeks assistance on their own, such as prison, jails, or mental institutions. So there it is. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. There is nothing that could have been done legally to pursue what these cops did. And at the end of the day, it's just another reminder that cops protect their own. They don't protect the community. And it's a sad, sad story that could have had a much shorter ending if there had been justice met by officers. And there truly wasn't and is a problem we still see consistently today. It doesn't matter if you see anything, it doesn't matter if you say anything, if you happen to look a certain way, that comes through far, that that your physical appearance is what's going to be read primarily first before your concerns. Overall, it's a wild show to watch and one that will infuriate you to know and definitely give it a watch. If you are going to watch it, please make sure you're watching it with um, some people with you because it is, it is a hard, hard watch, y'all. It is... Netflix has cashed in on really making this gross, and Evan Peters plays a very creepy uh, Dahmer, and I do love that they wanted to show that this man was uh, creepy. This man was a loser, uh, an absolute bona fide loser, and I love that they really gave life to his victims uh, and really wanted you to know that this man was doing heinous things to people that were looking uh, for a connection. So definitely, if you feel up for it, give it a watch. It Again, it is tough. He did get life in prison plus 10 years, but, you know, he didn't last too long. You know, he found his comeuppance uh, in prison in 1994, uh, where he was bludgeoned to death in in, uh, in the bathrooms of the gym. So that's uh, the end of Jeffrey Dahmer right there for you. But uh, I'm gonna look. I'm looking forward to you know other more upbeat uh, shows to discuss. Uh, but that's your show for you right there. Fill up to it, give it a watch. Otherwise, we'll catch you next time in the corner on Marlin's Corner, folks. Be cool, be easy. We appreciate you, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. This episode of Marlin's Corner was produced in Richmond, California. 